Our first sermon text is from John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The I am is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He lays me down in grassy fields. He guides me to peaceful waters. He restores my whole being. He leads me in tracks of righteousness for his name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a meal before me right in front of my enemies. You cover my head with oil. My cup spills over. Certainly goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. I will live in the house of the I am forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. morning. It's really something else. We've often been amazed by this. um, How this person, David, you know, do you know, I don't know if you know who David was. Uh, He's the warrior prince, the warrior king of the Old Testament in um, the Jewish story, the first great king of Israel. And David's a great hero in the Bible, but his heroics are expansive, they're extraordinary. It's not just the heroics of great action and great power and courage. He was also loving, deeply loving of other men. We know he was deeply loving of other women, too, even even to a fault. He was also a great poet. He he had an aesthetic sense. He had an aesthetic sense and gift with poetics that is still examined today and informed the course of English literature for the last 500 years because the Bible was one of the first sources of literature that most people had in the, the 13th and 14th century, well, when, when the Bible was about 15th century. But this right here informs a lot of our poetics. But it's brilliant poetry as it stands. So one of the things, what I'll tell you my idea what my plan of attack today is, and um, I want to talk about Jesus being the good shepherd. The good shepherd. And, and to do that, you're not, uh, none of you are shepherds. Anybody, anybody here work as a shepherd ever? Anybody ever had that job? You actually worked as a shepherd? Wow, that's pretty, all right, there, there you go. Metaphor doesn't work here. I want a physical shepherd. Any physical shepherds? No. We, in other words, the pastoral imagery, as, as beautiful, as lovely, as nostalgic as it might be for some of us, it doesn't necessarily uh, sing. It doesn't pop. You've never led a little lamb down. A, in fact, you might even read this and think it sounds kind of idyllic. And it just sounds kind of peaceful. But the, this, uh, our, our little poet here, David, our poet David, this is not peace. There's no peace here. There's death. There's death and destruction and evil. And so, uh, but I, so what I want to do is I want to open the poetics of the text to show how it informs and describes, and, and what, it's what Jesus is mining. It's what Jesus is referring to. It's where Jesus is starting when he says, I am the good shepherd. You see, he, he, we know that the, the Psalms, as he quotes them, he even quotes them as he dies on the cross, that these poems informed his heart. They shaped his heart and his soul. They shaped him at a deep level. They shaped him so deeply that in his greatest hour of distress, he uses them. He quotes them as he dies. So uh, so we're going to mine this. Then we're going to turn to Christ and ask ourselves, uh, well, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What does that mean? And then finally, finally, we're going to look at Christ's words 
And I hope, I just, I'm praying, I'm really praying about this. I've been, pray, I've been agitated in prayer for, for all of you. And I, I don't need, it was, yesterday was a long day of prayer, I know, but, and thank you for your prayers for me. But, man, I, my, I felt such a, I, I felt this, um, this happens to me sometimes when the spirit starts rustling around inside my heart, and I don't know what's going on. And I can feel it, I can feel him probing around, but I don't know what he's doing, <laughs> and it hurts, <laughs> but... It is what it is. All right, so and I'm also going to be playing with this technology a little bit today, so let's see if, uh, let's see if it's, hopefully it's not distracting. I'm hoping it's not. Uh, but let's begin right here. I have poetics. Poetics. Poetics are funny. Uh, the structure of a poem, the structure of a poem is a part of its meaning. Did you know that? The, the way that the poet structures meaning is the meaning. The media is the message kind of idea. In other words, so, and, and, and I hope you'll see it. This is wonderfully, wonderfully constructed. I don't know if you can see it, but three times he returns to his own self-reference, right? And each time, well, from the beginning time and the end time, he refers to the I am. But these self-references bracket, they structure the poem, you see? The I am is my chair, but I act nothing. And then he has a meditation, a meditation here, where he, five, four times he talks about who he is. Uh, and it's almost like, as he, as, he, as he explores here, as he explores the pastoral image, and he explores the, the promises of God here, he's talking about God, he, he comes down to a conclusion for his name. He, he, so, he knows this. He, he, he actually does theology up here. Theology, and by good biblical theology. What was his Bible? Anybody know? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Ruth was his, anybody remember? Who is Ruth? His great-grandma. Ruth's great-grandma. So, all right, so, but look at this. Then, as he comes to the center part, now all Hebrew poetry doesn't, doesn't the last line's not the most important. Usually the, the line that's the most important to the poet is the center one. And, and the brackets, they're like a, it's like a candy. It's like, a, you know where the good candy has the, has the center, is the, is the caramel bit, it's the sweet bit, and, the, and chocolate's on the outside? That's what he's doing with his poem here. Now look at the second part. He moves from theology, doesn't he? He lays, he guides, he restores, he leads. To what? He comes to this conclusion, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. And then he, he turns to God. And all of a sudden, the theology comes alive. And this becomes prayer. You see it? It becomes directed up. He, he immediately takes the data that he's collected in his heart, that he's collected in his scriptures, that he's collected in his experience. And what does he do with that data as he's collected it? He immediately turns and he shoots it up. It becomes, a, it becomes an item of praise. And where does it end, in fact? Real praise, exaltation. And so you see the, 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 the structure here. I'm going to give you a little hint here about your memorization. If you were to close your eyes right now, you could do this, David. You could do this. You could do this, Will. I know some of you could do this right now. If you were to close your eyes, you could probably recreate the entire poem right now, just knowing that structure. That's what structure is good for, right? It helps anchor ideas, communicate meaning, and give you the ability to go, all right, now, if you don't look at it, can you kind of picture in your head exactly how it's structured? It's very simple, isn't it? These structures were meant to give you, uh, they're like a mnemonic gift. They're a gift to you, so you will remember. And that's going to become very important as we kind of open up the scriptures here together. Isn't that fun? 
Now, I, I, as much as I love this poetics for, and, and all this structure, uh, what, what, what conclusions, what, what's the sense of this text? And, and what kind of comfort does it give us? I have a new puppy. Did you meet my Tuffy yet? He's, Mindy's taking care of him in the back. I, we brought him because I don't want to have to run home. I want to be able to have lunch with people. And, and, uh, and uh, yesterday, yesterday on the Embarcadero, as we were praising God, and by the way, the Embarcadero, you know what we were doing? We were just offering to pray for people. And it was really cool. I, you got to get in on this. It's fun. But, but I were out there, of course, he became a Jesus dog. And, and he was attracting everybody in, right? And I, I, I'm going to use my dog. I don't care. All right, so. All right, well, where, did that going, where am I going with that? Oh, having a puppy, having a dog at all, you realize the creature is just so, I mean, if stupid is catching, I'm in trouble. This creature is dumb. This creature cannot feed itself. It doesn't know where to go to the bathroom. It can't find, it has no, it cannot guide itself. It's interesting to watch it. He doesn't know what he can and can't eat. He eats everything, he eats leaves and he gets sick and he's just, you're watching it and I'm loving it. You can tell I'm loving it. I want to be the good shepherd to him, right? I want to take care of him. But that, it's comprehensive. And that's the first thing I observe about this wonderful poem. It's comprehensive, isn't it? Every part and piece of life is encompassed in the language. It is meant to communicate complete care, total care. It's meant to, complete, it's meant to communicate that you can do nothing to even take care of or rescue yourself, especially in light of what? Death and evil. Oh. Praise him. All right, so at first it has that comprehensive care. What's the second thing I observe? The second thing I observe is it teaches us to take theology and to work it into our personal experience in prayer. Yes, take God's promises and pray them back. Take them back and say, you are, aren't you with me? You are, and, and, and you hear it. This is the work that you're to be doing. This is one of the reasons why I encourage you so deeply to be involved in Bible study or in your own study. Why? Because only if you're in the Word are you going to learn to do what? Turn that Word around and do what? What He does with it. Make it a, make it a, make it praise. Make it a plea. Make it intercession. Let me go a second part further than this. David's also teaching you that if you can do theology without praise, if you can do the work of theology and thinking about the Bible and reading it without communicating to God, something's wrong. <laughs> That's a break-off. That's a disconnect. You're not living out the gospel here, are you? And we're going to see how important that is as we... So we see it's, it's comprehensive. And, and, and it teaches us and show, it, it shows us uh, how we turn from theology to prayer. How we, do, we need to do the work of application at a deep level if we really know theology. There's a final part to it, too. It describes a triumph over death. The shadow of death is death. It's not, it's not a fit. It's the idea when death is the shadow, but death is only a shadow to him. Because how does he end? Where will he live? Where will he live forever? In the house of his God. Oh, it's so beautiful. Lovely. Wonderful. Ah. So it, it's victory over death. David, in a way, and you, you may not appreciate this, if you don't come from my worldview, if you don't believe the Bible, this is going to be, seem a little weird to you, but I'm going to claim that David actually talks about deliverance from death because the Spirit is directing him to describe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ owns this as the good shepherd. 
It's his poem as well as ours. And I love that. It belongs to him. And it's our treasure because of him, isn't it? Otherwise, it would just be a nice sentiment. But we know it's about Jesus. Praise him. Praise him. I want to go with this. I want to go to a place where you can understand that everything I just described is the work of substitutionary atonement. <laughs> oh, let me, let, me, let, me, let me with delight just jump around. Because this is all meant to describe and begin to picture to you and picture for you and picture in you, as it were, what substitutionary atonement. It's Rembrandt. Now Rembrandt here in this, in this beautiful, beautiful picture of Christ on the cross, Christ is no longer the Apollo. He's no longer the Adonis. He's no longer the muscled man. He is no longer looks beautiful. In fact, he looks distinctively unbeautiful. In fact, if you look at his face closely enough, you realize that's Rembrandt himself. That is Rembrandt's self-portrait on the cross. Rembrandt's right there. Why does he do that? It's interesting to watch and to read the literary critics, the, I'm sorry, literary, the art critics, who will, you know, look, let's, 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 psycho, let's psychoanalyze this for a second. Let's psychoanalyze this. What, what would Freud do with this? <laughs> what, would a, what would a modern therapist do with this? This person has self-hatred. This person is taking their own self-revulsion and they're putting themselves on a cross because Rembrandt hated himself so much. Something like that. This, in fact, Rembrandt putting himself in the place of Jesus could be seen, could be interpreted, could be imagined as irreverent, presumptuous, narcissistic, unusual at very best. If you look at it from a worldly point of view. But here's the thing. Rembrandt was a Christian. Rembrandt loved Jesus and loved God. And it breathes. And he draw and what he what he believes, and the reason he's on this cross is because he believes in the substitutionary atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what he believes. He believes Christ on the cross took his place as a substitute. Because what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And this is where this gets even weirder. The word here for life is not zoe. It's not the word for eternal life. The word for life here is suke. The word we get psyche from. Soul. When Christ talks about what he wants to do and how he's about to do it, he's not merely describing the extinguishing of his physical life. He is describing some surrender of everything he is and everything he holds value. It's weird. It's just telling you. It goes places in the mind and heart and imagination of Christ himself that we dare not go, that we find ourselves beggared by. It's extraordinary. The language itself is just simply extraordinary. So what did that beautiful poem teach you? Uh, three things it taught you. What were the three things it taught you about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ? First, it's complete. What part of your rescue is left unfinished, Gina? What part? Nothing. What part do you need to finish, D? What do you have to do? What do you have to do, Will? What do you have to do tomorrow to complete your salvation or complete your rescue or to make sure you're okay? Nothing. He is a complete substitution. 
And that's what that little poem promises. Put your faith in him today. Trust him today. What's the second part it does? It moves from theology, what? Into praise. It activates theology. It activates life. Oh, this is love turned into action, isn't it? This is nothing abstract here. There's nothing removed from your life. This is the reality of a man dying, but not just a man, the son of God himself, the God man. Oh, but never forget he is fully a man and every part of his suffering that's manly and mannish is completely real and undiminished and unsoftened by the divine presence. Whew. Why? Because he said he gave up his psyche, his soul. For that's what the good shepherd does. <laughs> this is what he does. What's the third thing? The third part of that? Triumph over death and the valley of the shadow of death. How is it that this wonderful, wonderful poet could so deeply grab and describe and animate to our consciousness and our imagination and our lives today the beauty and reality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I just love this stuff. I can't get enough of it. Substit so what's, what's the call here? Give your lives to Christ. If you don't know Christ today, if you have not made the decision, if you've not made a decision for Christ, today's the day to do it. Decide for Christ to make him your substitute. Decide to invite him in and know him. Because what's the second part of this? I'm the good shepherd, I know my own. And my own know me. And knowing in John and knowing in the scriptures, the yada, the gnosko, it's all about what? Intimacy. About oneness. Whew. Wonderful stuff. All right. So, so I present to you the poem. And as I present to you the poem, I want to build up an argument for how Christ owns and in a sense fulfills the poem when he says he's the good shepherd and fulfills it at the cross. Hmm. Well, here's the problem. This is from our book that we're, we're reading together. You know, why did I put this quote from the book in here? To get some of you to pick it up and read it. All right. <laughs> So on page four, he has a diagram. He talks about how we know about past forgiveness. Now I'm moving on. I invited, but just, I just did something in, my, in the presentation in my words. In my words, I invited you to know God. So if you don't know God, you need to stop listening and just start praying to him right now. That he would know him. Don't worry about that. What I'm going to talk about now are those who do know God. Because if you have known God and you live as the good shepherd, you know him and he knows you. Well, why... Why are you living the way you're living then? What I mean is, why is there a hole in the here and now? You can look back at a past forgiveness with joy. You can preach it. You can say it. You could sit in a meeting with me and tell me that you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You could easily answer the questions that I'm looking for answers to, to prove to me that you're a Christian and still not really have it in you. <laughs> it's just part of the problem. We're all good parrots. We're all, we can mimic we can say things we don't mean or understand. But regardless, past forgiveness and some future hope. But here and now, it is in the here and now that many of us experience a gospel blindness. Our sight is dimmed by the tyranny of the urgent, by the siren call of success, by the seductive beauty of physical things, by our inability to admit our own problems, and by the casual relationships within the body of Christ that we mistakenly, and I will say foolishly, I will say if you call your, your intimacy with other people here fellowship, you're full of crap. 
Because I don't see that intimacy that we, we, that's created by the Spirit. Not even amongst us. I'm tasting it here and there. But I don't see passionate, self-giving sacrifice from us. Sometimes you taste it from them. Or just a surrender of you. Who knows? Anyway, we live in this hole here. This hole. Oh my gosh, I, I feel like the hole is getting bigger. I feel like churches are slipping into it everywhere. Where somehow a, 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 an immediate now passion for this God. But I want to I explore something with you. And then I, I want to share this with you because I don't know what to do with it. Um, uh, have you ever broken a game? Has anybody here ever broken a game? You know what I mean by breaking a game? What does it mean to break a game? If you're a gamer, uh, de- detect knows what this means. What happens when you break a game? It's when you figure out some way that, you, that the game doesn't account for to win. And in other words, it creates an easy path to success. It's called breaking a game because it's not any fun anymore. Uh, when people break games, a lot of times quality assurance people will sit there and they'll try everything they can about the game to try to figure out where the blind spots are. This happens a lot with board games too. You know, the board game needs to be played a lot to figure out if it's broken. If there's some way you can get around the rules, if there's some way you can get around all the rules and win every time, well, that makes the game empty and broken. See, it doesn't mean that something's broken here. Maybe it's, it's me. And maybe it's my theology. Maybe it's your theology. Because I don't know what you do with this. Calvin talks about this. Calvin says it is extraordinary that the final cause of his love for the son, the father's love for the son, the final cause, the, in other words, the motive, that which it all drives to in eternity from the father to the son is based on what? On how the son loves you. No, 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 that doesn't work. That doesn't work because that doesn't work. Uh, Jesus must be wrong here because God is eternal. And as eternal, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know He's immutable. We know that He holds all things in Himself. We know He's eternally past and eternally future. He is always the same. There's none like Him. No, not one. He is amazing beyond imagination. And then He says things that just trip all your theology on His face, that trip everything I think. And says, you know why dad loves me so much? Do you know why my dad really, really loves me? Because I give up my CK, my soul, for the people I love. And he just loves that. <laughs> it is extraordinary that Christ would attribute the final cause of his love to you. And the way that God loves him to you. The way that the father loves the son to you. Why? What does this mean? It means, it means that God's love's greater than I can possibly even logically demonstrate. It doesn't even make sense because it's that great. He is able to talk in his Trinitarian love from eternity about a passion he shares for his son. And the son knows that he has, father has in him for you. (sighs) Uh, So the engine of eternal destiny, the engine of eternal love, the engine of eternal will and predestination, the engine of saving and rescuing sinners and you originates in the way the Father loves the Son and the way the Son is always pleasing the Father. And how does he always please the Father? 
the way he gave his life for me. And I am gobsmacked by that. I just, what? Let's go back to the beginning now, because I want you to see something. Remember we saw that when Christ says he's the door and he's the shepherd, he's a way of him saying, I am dinner and the dinner plate. He's a way of saying, I am subject and object. I am everything. I am, I am the delivery system and the delivery. <laughs> I, I am everything you want. I am all, what? In all. And that's what those, that's what those concepts mean. That's what comes here. So when we begin, what, what, what do we begin with? The tender shepherd. My little puppy. The picture is my little puppy. Can't even feed himself. And, and, and imagine me, I'm chasing him around. I'm chasing, you, can, you all can picture that, can't you? I'm chasing him around. And just to think, the father says, I, that's what I love about my son. <laughs> it's the way he chases you and loves you and takes care of everything. He is such a complete savior, my son, says the father. I, I'm crazy about him. <laughs> I'm crazy about how he loves you. Ah, oh, we're talking about eternal verities. You understand we're in the threshold of eternal things. I'm talking, I don't even know if what I'm saying makes any sense. That's the challenge of describing and talking about an eternal God. We are intellectually feeble. We are unable. We find ourselves crippled. But we don't have to know or understand deeply, do we, just to say, oh, I'm okay. My puppy doesn't understand who I am, does he? He doesn't know my name. He doesn't have to. He pictures what real trust looks like in Jesus, doesn't he? Complete trust. Daddy, he looks at me, Daddy, I need to walk. Daddy, I need food. Daddy, I need, I need attention. Daddy, that's how you're supposed to go to God. That the Lord is your shepherd. And if he's the good shepherd, he's the total need, the total answer to your needs in all those beautiful ways that the poem describes. I guess my first thing I want to do is if we're going to, let's go here, let's go back here. So how are we going to bridge this? How are we going to start covering the holdover? How are we going to start covering the holdover here? I'll tell you how we'll do it. One of the ways we'll start to do it by looking at Christ as a complete Savior. And that you lack, no, Agatha, you lack nothing. If you do, then he's a liar. <laughs> and he's not a liar. He is truth itself. What's the second thing that it does? It takes theology and brings it into the real world. Remember, the poet meditates on the attributes of God and the attributes of, as their attributes of a shepherd and then says, you, 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 you. Turns to God in passionate worship. <sighs> Well, that's what Jesus does for us. You know, here, yeah, okay, let me say, tell you something. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to learn a song, Help My Unbelief. I've been singing it all week. <sighs> Every one of you, I want to I challenge you to come to Christ with simple surrender. I'm dead serious about this. So that you will begin to connect your theology with your life. And I want, none of you are really good at this. I'm not even good at it. So that's what I'm, I'm going to suggest we do right here, right now, as good little sheep. Let's pray right now. Let's pray. I'm serious. Pray right now. Dear Father, will you take care of all the stuff we can't do and help us to do it because we don't even know where to start. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. That's how you go to the good shepherd. That's what a good shepherd does. Look, some of you have been trying to make your faith happen for years and you think, Chris, it is so empty. I still believe it, but why doesn't it actually change things? I wonder if you're living in surrender of the good shepherd and trust. <laughs> I don't know, something to ask, right? <laughs>
Have you released your theology into praise? Or is it all bottled up inside you? And you know more than you act and know more than you think and know more than you thank God for. It's a big problem in Christianity. It happens all the time. It creates tremendous death. Oh, I'm at the end of my outline. Something else I was going to say. Oh, and the victory of death. I will fear no evil. The valley shot of death. Um, uh, let me teach you something. I, 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 am a, I am a person held captive to fear. And it's, it's a little embarrassing to say it because I don't appear so and I, and I camouflage it, but I am craven. I can be a very craven and cowardly man. And sometimes I think I like to, I like to push that limits and look brave by being, out, by being a rock climber because, man, talk about tough, you know? Aren't you impressed? I've been on a, cal- I've been on a cap. I failed, but still, aren't you impressed? Don't be. Don't be. God gave me a love for that, and I enjoyed it. But I've been, I've been lost on a wall before. I've been set looking at a 70 to 100 foot fall, looking for something to hold on to. And you know what I was doing the whole time? <laughs> I was shaking. I'm not even kidding. I remember the, 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 the place I had to get to is about as far as that wall. And I was about, I was, uh, I was actually 35 feet above my last piece, which meant I was looking at a 70 to 100 foot fall on the other side of it. So I was really, really, really scared. <laughs> and I was shaking. But I remember, I don't remember anything else but this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He calls me to lie down by my ashes, he restores my soul. He lays my thing I've shouted death. I'll for now, he will figure with me. You understand if you come for me. Over and over. Hmm. Hmm. I'm telling you something. Uh, if you want the good shepherd to shepherd your soul, start learning these, 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 these texts and make them like a mantra. <laughs> I don't even care. It's not like mantras heal us or anything. It's not, I don't believe in mantras. What I mean is take the word of God and own it. So it becomes your functional response to terror. And let's face it, you and I face terror sometimes when a little letter comes in the mail from the IRS. I mean, we are all terrified by all sorts of things, right? And we're all, oh, what's going to happen next? And, and, and panic is such a big problem amongst all of us. But what is the most common command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Don't, do you hear his love again? Do you hear it again? Don't you hear it again? That's why the Father loves him so much, because he says things like that to us and buys us at the cross with such love and completeness. All right, as we end up here, as we end up here, I want to go back to the poem. And uh, I want to end with this. Um, Let me see if I can can figure out how to use this here. Because what I want to do is I want to erase all this stuff. Oh, it doesn't matter. See this? <sighs> uh, how does the poet end? How does David end? He ends with this, 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 this idea that having all the stuff that he's experiencing, and his fear and God's answer and, and his confidence, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. You hear it? He knows that there's a longer story ahead of him. He knows that. And what does he hope for his whole life? What does he describe? The active goodness of God. It was, it was one of my favorite features of Sinclair Ferguson. And he has a wonderful Scottish accent, which I cannot imitate. And I wish I could. It's just so beautiful. Because I remember when he, when he actually preaches this. He said, goodness and mercy are like two little sheepdogs. 
That's the way he described it. They're like two little sheepdogs of God's. And they're chasing the people of God all the days of their life. Where? Where is he chasing them to? Where is God's goodness and mercy always chasing you? As God is chasing, what is, what, what is, where is he chasing you to? Into his house forever. I want to leave you with that, with that joy. Like, like I've described a God you can't comprehend today. I get it. So worship him. I've described a God today that just is, is so beyond our, even our imagination. So turn to him. I described to God that it could be your total, your total, the total answer to our needs and our salvation and our rescue. So turn to him and put your faith in him again and again now as he's offered to you again and again. But finally, do you know why I, I, I will leave today with confidence? Because I'm setting Jesus loose on y'all. I just am. And I'm going to keep praying. And you know what my prayers are for you, Deepak? That goodness and mercy will hound you. And you, each one of you can't escape it, you can't hide from it, you can't run from it. But that all this love of God from eternity will hunt you down and never give up. Amen? Let it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Father. <laughs> oh, Father. I praise you and your love. I, I have this thing I want to ask for from you. In this moment, I want to ask you if you will, if you will make me, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to, I'll pray for everybody, okay? I want to ask you, you would make us into a people who delight you in how we love other people. <laughs> if Jesus is in us and the spirit is true and we get the gospel and all this good news, what's the reality that happens? Well, then you're in love with us, right? <laughs> You love us because of how we love others. Let that be so. Let that be the gospel flood released into our community and our lives. <laughs> we praise you for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And we only come to you because of it. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen.